Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 94 for the first third of December 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is error and uncertainty in science. As with the last episode, this is more of a basic science one that does not deal with any specific claim, but the basics of it really come into play in practically every episode of this podcast. What I'm going to cover is the difference between error and uncertainty in science, what the difference is between accuracy and precision, and what the different types of errors in science are and how they contribute to estimates of uncertainty. To do this, I'm going to first describe an experiment, one that was actually a lab that I taught as part of an introductory astronomy class uh, maybe eight years ago. It was called the Eratosthenes Challenge, named after the Greek man, ancient Greek man, Eratosthenes, who was one of the first people to estimate the circumference of Earth. He did this by measuring shadow lengths at the same time in two cities separated by a known distance. For the lab, we did this in reverse. Students walked between the campus observatory, which was at a known latitude, and Baseline Road in Boulder, Colorado, USA, which runs on the 40th line of latitude. Based on the latitude difference between the observatory and the road, in other words, the fraction of the entire circumference of the planet, along with the number of steps that it took each student to walk between the two, and with calibrating their step size by walking to an American football field on campus and seeing how many steps it took them to walk from one end of the field to the other, which was 100 yards, they were able to calculate, or estimate, the circumference of the planet. After the lab was all said and done, we combined everyone's data from two lab sections and got a circumference of 25,000 plus or minus 2,000 miles, or about 40,000 plus or minus 3,000 kilometers. Note that this is the polar circumference, which is currently estimated to be roughly 39,941 kilometers, or about 24,818 miles. The questions to answer for this episode are, what is the accuracy of our data? What is the precision of our data? What are the sources of error and the kinds of error? And what is the uncertainty? A lot of these, unfortunately, are kind of like the word theory and hypothesis. They're used interchangeably by most people, but they mean very specific things to scientists. Accuracy is a measurement of how close a measured value is to the true, or generally accepted value. If there is no known value yet, then it is impossible to measure accuracy. For example, if we did not know the circumference of Earth, then the Eratosthenes Challenge Lab could not have a measured accuracy. Since we do know Earth's circumference, then I can qualitatively state, as in give a non-numerical statement as opposed to quantitatively state, as in giving a numerical answer. So I can qualitatively state the accuracy of our work was pretty good, since the aggregate results match the known value to within our uncertainty. Precision is something different, and it can give you a measurement of uncertainty and error. Precision is how well multiple measurements agree with each other. For example, if one student got a value of 25,000 miles, another student got a value of 1,000 miles, and another student got a value of 42,000 miles, then those would not be very precise because the values differ significantly. If instead, three students got values for Earth's circumference of 25,000, 23,000, and 26,000 miles, then those would be more precise. 
Similarly, if three students got values for Earth's circumference of, say, 2,500,000, 2,300,000, and 2,600,000 miles, they would still be precise, but not accurate. To use a different, perhaps more common analogy when describing these terms, one can think of a target that you were to shoot six arrows at. If your arrows are all very close together, regardless of where they hit the target, then that's very precise. If they're all over the place, but still would average to hit in the middle of the target, then they're not precise, but they're considered to be very accurate. It's a little bit unintuitive that you can be precise but not accurate, or accurate but not precise, but that's how the definitions in science for these terms actually are. With that in mind, the idea of experimental error comes into play. An error is considered to be anything that makes your result less accurate and or precise, and there are several different kinds of error. There are really two primary kinds of error in any experiment, although there are two additional subtypes. The first main type of error is called a systematic error, and it happens when there is something that, no matter how many times you repeat the experiment, you are still going to be off in the same direction by some amount. In the Eratosthenes challenge, an example of a systematic error would be that we could not start exactly at the telescope dome that was at the known latitude. We had to start a little bit in front of the building. I mean, you're not going to be able to stand on top of the telescope and start walking from there. That's going to affect our results because there will be a certain offset, an error, that cannot be changed no matter how many times we repeat the experiment. We can try to account for it, in fact we did account for it, but it's still considered to be a systematic error. In the archery and the target example, my archery when I took the class in college always had a systematic error. No matter how I moved my body or how I moved the sighting ring or how we moved the target to try to compensate, I was always a little bit to the left of center. I was highly precise, but I had low accuracy. If you've heard of a bias in data, the more formal name for that is a systematic error. In other words, I was biased to the left. We were biased in the Eratosthenes challenge to be a little bit short of our total circumference because we had to start a little bit closer to baseline road than we really should have because we didn't know the precise latitude of where exactly we were starting. The second kind of error is called random error, and it's random error that we try to decrease by repeating experiments over and 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 over again. In the Eratosthenes challenge, perhaps the clearest source of random error is variable step size, since that was our measurement unit. Not only do people not take exactly the same stride length, but hills and valleys will vary the degrees of latitude that your stride takes you because of the slope. But the idea of the random error is that it is random, and that over time and multiple repeats, those random errors will average out, and you can get a more accurate result. Not only that, but by taking the results from multiple people, you can hopefully get an even more accurate result. Many times, scientists are most aware of the random errors and least aware of the systematic errors. It's the systematic errors especially that lead to different results between research groups that they often fight over, or that independent reviewers during the peer review process try to identify that might throw off your results. For example, there was an announcement a few years ago by CERN that the Large Hadron Collider appeared to show that neutrinos could travel faster than light. They tried to reduce all of the random errors that they could, search for any systematic errors and correct for them, but in the end, 
they still appeared to find that neutrinos could travel faster than light. Later, they found that the problem was a cable wasn't plugged in all the way, and the difference in length and plugging it in all the way negated the effect. That is a systematic error, because no matter how many times they repeated the experiment, they were still off by a certain amount. This is why systematic errors are perhaps the worst kind, because they can be the hardest to find or consider, no matter how much you think you've removed or corrected for them. With those in mind, I told you that there are two additional subtypes of error. The first is reading error, also known as measurement error. This is where any measuring tool has a finite amount of granularity or fineness. For example, my kitchen food scale reads to the one gram or eighth of an ounce level. Therefore, assuming everything else is perfect, I can only know the weight of something to plus or minus one gram, and that is my measurement or reading error. In the Eratosthenes challenge, there are two sources of measurement error. The measurement unit was footsteps, so you always have at least plus or minus one footstep error, and the position of the observatory and baseline road were to the 0.000001 latitude, degrees latitude, which corresponds to about plus or minus 0.1 meters, or 4 to 5 inches. In many experiments, reading errors are the smallest source of error. The final subtype is calibration error, which is, strangely enough, how well something is calibrated. In the Eratosthenes challenge to get a circumference of Earth in real units like miles or fake units like kilometers instead of individual students' footsteps, we went to the American football field and each student measured how many steps they took to walk 100 yards between goal lines. Any random measurement or systematic errors that fed into that measurement of the number of footsteps per 100 yards gives you the calibration error. As a perhaps more mundane example, the idea of calibration error is really just how well the measuring instrument is made. So say for example, you have a crappy Chinese knockoff scale, and it might have fairly high calibration error. Whereas if you have a good old American made scale, it might have a fairly low calibration error, meaning that you can trust the numbers that it gives you more. These are usually quoted by the manufacturer, as in a tolerance for the equipment. As another example of this, in episode 82, I talked about designing a hyperdimensional physics experiment with an Accutron watch. When originally manufactured, those watches had very tiny calibration errors, but over the last several decades, and after the many modifications that Richard C. Hoagland has made to it, the calibration errors are likely much higher, giving you a less accurate result. All of the errors combine and propagate through the experiment give you a final formal uncertainty. In most circumstances in real science labs, the uncertainty is almost entirely made of random errors. Calibration errors should be tiny because you should be using good equipment. Same with reading errors. You should try to think of all of the systematic errors that you can and correct for them so they don't play a role. So, in most cases, you are mostly limited by random scatter, also called noise, in your own measurements of something because of innumerable things that you cannot correct for but can be diminished by repeating the experiment over and over and over and over again. Like, for example, varying footstep size as you do this Eratosthenes challenge we've been talking about. In very formal, very tightly controlled physics experiments where you are trying to do things like, say, determine the mass of an electron or determine the mass of the Higgs boson, 
every single source of error is propagated through the experiment to give you a formal confidence level on the end result. Usually this is expressed as a Gaussian or bell curve uncertainties where one standard deviation or one sigma means that's where you expect 68% of the data to fall. Two sigma is 95% and so on. This was discussed in a lot more detail in episode 82. A different way of thinking about these one sigma or one standard deviation or just n standard deviation uncertainty estimates is that it would be if you arrive at a result and give a one sigma uncertainty, that means that you are 68% certain that the true value or the accuracy of your result is in that range. Or that if you were to repeat the experiment 100 times, that 68% of the time your results would fall in that range. If you've been able to reduce your errors, then that range is going to be very small. If you have large errors, then that uncertainty range is going to be very large. In the Eratosthenes Challenge Lab, after combining results from two different lab classes for a total of 41 different measurements, assuming that we were dominated by random error, we got a value of 25,000 plus or minus 2,000 miles, or 40,000 plus or minus 3,000 kilometers. That plus or minus is the uncertainty, one standard deviation, given the range of values, the random error, from 41 different students. And, since that range does encompass the true value, I can say that our results, overall, were accurate. And by accurate, I mean the real definition of accurate, as I talked about earlier on in the episode. Another part of what I just did implicitly is round the results to two significant figures. That's because I don't think the results were really precise enough from this lab to really measure the value to better than one part in a hundred. There are very formal rules for significant figures, which I never actually learned, but really I just try to say, use common sense, especially when it comes to all of the digits that your calculator gives you. I once had a student who turned in a lab where they had to calculate the mass of Jupiter using Kepler's laws and the moons that orbit Jupiter. The answer they gave me for the mass of Jupiter was negative 0.05234612349789 grams. Besides making absolutely no sense to not only have a negative mass, but also a mass of less than one-tenth of a gram, the student gave me every digit their calculator spit out. And yet, there is no possible way from that lab for them to be able to have that kind of accuracy to one part in a billion. One can look at all of the digits that programs are more than happy to give you. For example, the actual average of the values from the Eratosthenes Challenge Lab to six figures was 24,688.4 plus or minus 2,458.9 miles. Given that the true polar circumference of the planet is 24,818 miles, one might be tempted to use three significant figures and say that our average was just 100 miles off from the true value. Or one might be tempted to use four significant figures and say we were actually 130 miles off. One could say that. Although I think that you have to be very careful about doing so because the lab methods can't yield accuracies to four or five significant figures, at least the way we did the lab. But with that in mind, I have an obligatory coast-to-coast -coast AM clip. The researcher is Stan Deo. George Norrie reads his bio as stating that he is a, quote, research physicist and author who has worked undercover for the FBI as well as holding top-secret security clearance and worked in an exclusive black project that specialized in flying saucer technology 
and he is an expert when it comes to Earth changes. Stan is a frequent guest on Coast to Coast, and he was on the show on May 2nd, 2008, to discuss Nevada earthquakes. As I was zooming down in from the altitude that they, they have the map on Google Earth, I realized I was looking at a regular pattern, like a, a grid square, where these earthquakes occurred, right over uh, the uh, Verde Mogul, which is uh, just west of uh, Reno, where the, the quakes are occurring. And I thought, now that must be an anomaly. It must be some kind of a computer sensor error or something. I mean, surely they wouldn't have earthquakes that are regular in square patterns. I mean, like uh, 19 squares, you know, perfect squares the same size? Now, it couldn't be. So I'd, I started going all over the planet looking at other Google Earth plots. There was about 1,500 earthquakes to look at. And I scanned the hot spots around and couldn't find any of them with the same characteristic. So I went back, and then I started looking at each individual dot and zoomed down close to where that earthquake was. And in that grid, on the vertices of the grid, which we put on our website, and I think, I don't know whether you guys have it yet, but we're trying to get it up on your website too, Uh, it's like um, a tic-tac-toe board, and where the lines cross in it is where these earthquakes all occurred at regular intervals. And so I started clicking on each one and found out it wasn't one earthquake in each of those places. It was like sometimes 40 or 50 in that one spot. And so I thought, wow. And I said, well, which ones of these vertices in this regular grid had these enormous number of earthquakes? And it was something like uh, grids 5, 8, 10, and 15, or whatever it is. I've, I've got Holly put it up on the website. Uh, but the, the, it was like the majority of the earthquakes that got triggered at these grid marks were along a, a spot that they wanted to hit. Uh, well, I'm going to say they wanted to hit that, that some, there's intelligent design behind what I'm trying to say. Someone has done something to make this earthquake series happen. And they've been pounding the heck out of these grid marks to make the, the bigger earthquakes occur in between these vertices. Uh, it, once I realized that, it was just obvious, 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 something is wrong here. After that, the host and Stan went on to speculate about weather warfare and exotic technology to cause earthquakes, especially in these strangely regular grid-like patterns. As is hopefully obvious to you all, given the context of this quote and its placement in the episode, this is a very obvious case of rounding and significant figures. On Earth, if you round the latitude and longitude location to something, say, just one one-thousandth of a degree, then your resolution is only 36 feet, or about 11 meters. And it doesn't matter how many data points you put down, if you're rounded to one-thousandth of a degree, then you're going to have grid-like patterns spaced about 11 meters apart. If you round to the closest minute, as in 1 60th of a degree, and don't include seconds, which gives you 1 3,600th of a degree, then your resolution is only 1.1 miles, or 1.8 kilometers, which is about half the size of the city of Boulder. Now, in fairness, I do seem to recall that Stan came on many many months later, and just as a sort of quick side note, mea culpa mentioned that this was the case, that he had been wrong, but this kind of illustrates pretty darn well how this stuff plays out and why it really does matter that you understand all of the stuff that goes into uncertainty and measurement error and significant figures and rounding and all these other things, and how, especially if you're somewhat already conspiratorial, you may not look for the obvious explanation. And the same really is true for this entire discussion. If you don't have a good understanding of how science is done, of how your own measurements may not be as certain as you think, then your results can be incredibly off the mark, 
and combined with an already conspiratorial or pseudoscientific mindset, can easily lead to many of the topics that I discuss on this podcast. This episode's question for Q&A comes from Ken S., who asked many months ago about asteroid Apophis and it hitting Earth or not. NASA was giving certain odds for it hitting in 2036, 2037, and 2068, but then those odds changed based on the flyby of Apophis in early 2013. After that flyby, NASA was listing the odds at practically zero that it would hit in 2036, and Ken wanted to know how NASA could calculate that and whether they really knew what they claimed to know, or whether it was more of a conspiracy that they were just trying to hide this from the public. Ken had asked this question, or this series of questions, back in July, and I've held on to it for this episode because it has all to do with measurement errors and determining orbits. Instead of answering in a specific way based on all the types of error discussed in this episode, I'm going to explain it as a for instance. Let's say that you observe a hot air balloon floating by. You make three separate measurements, all of them one second apart, so your baseline of time is three seconds. Based on those, you extrapolate a path. You might be able to predict where the hot air balloon is going to be in 30 seconds fairly well, but where it will be in 30 minutes is going to have a huge uncertainty because of the tiny uncertainties in the measurements that you made, while small in the short term, are going to grow larger on the long term. But if you make another measurement in 10 minutes, then you've just constrained your solution, your path of the hot air balloon, and you've just shrunk your uncertainty and can extrapolate to longer periods of time with smaller amounts of uncertainty. The same goes for orbits. While you want a lot of observations of an object in order to accurately determine the orbit, you also want them to be spread over a long range of time. You especially want to be able to observe it after it will be perturbed a large amount. Even if you can predict that perturbation, you want to be able to observe it after that, like, say, if it were perturbed by a relatively close encounter with a planet, like what happened with Apophis earlier this year. This allows you to better constrain the orbit, knowing the orbital elements to greater accuracy and to more significant figures, and it will allow you to project the orbit further into the future with a reasonable idea of where it will be. But, you still have an inherent uncertainty in knowing the orbital elements to a finite level, the whole Nevada earthquake grid resolution thing. Not only that, but after a point, our knowledge of fundamental physics and uncertainties associated with that will also play a role. For example, we only know the gravitational constant to about six significant figures, and the last two are uncertain, meaning that the relative uncertainty is about one part in 10,000. So, if we can observe Apophis enough to know its orbital elements to better accuracy, then the uncertainty in gravity is going to start to affect how well we can know the orbit after an arbitrary amount of time into the future. What this all boils down to is that the very precise measurements of Apophis taken during its close flyby six months ago allowed scientists to constrain the orbit well enough that the uncertainty ellipse of its orbit, and where it will be in 2036, is such that there is less than one in a billion chance of it hitting Earth, which is why it's no longer listed on watch lists for that year, although Michael Horn is still trying to scare people by saying that Billy Meyer says it'll hit. In 2068, 
the probability is still a little bit high, with one chance in about 260,000. With more measurements, the uncertainty ellipse will be better constrained, and it will shrink. And either the impact probability will go up as it shrinks towards Earth, or it will go down as the uncertainty ellipse shrinks away from Earth. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you would like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, such as you know, probably the easiest just being to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. There is one item of feedback for this episode, and it relates to the last episode's topic on the peer review process. John from Michigan, USA, wrote in to ask about the Data Quality Act that was signed into law by President George W. Bush. The DQA, as it's often abbreviated, was decried by numerous groups as a way for the government to censure unpopular opinions, well, actually unpopular data, because it requires a, quote, policy and procedural guidance to federal agencies for ensuring and maximizing the quality, objectivity, utility, and integrity of information, including statistical information disseminated by federal agencies, end quote. In other words, what sounds like peer review is actually review by elected or appointed bureaucrats. Chris Mooney wrote, quote, As subsequently interpreted by the Bush administration, the so-called Data Quality Act creates an unprecedented and cumbersome process by which government agencies must field complaints over the data, studies, and reports they release to the public. It is a science abuser's dream come true. End quote. Now, I can't really speak to how it's being used or enforced now, especially given a different administration in the White House, but Wikipedia does provide numerous links to the Office of Management and Budget's guidelines regarding the Act. What I can say is that from my own personal experience as a non-government employee publishing in non-government journals and especially on a non-politically sensitive topic, I have had zero experience being censured as a result of this Act. So other than really letting you know about it, that it exists, but that I have not had any personal experience with it, I can't really say much about it. And now, after a very long dry spell, it's time for the puzzler, where sometimes in the episodes I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based, very loosely in this case, on the material discussed in the main segment. This is a puzzler that was sent in by listener Leonard B., and it relates to the Eratosthenes challenge example I discussed throughout the main segment. The equatorial circumference of the Earth is 21,600 nautical miles, or 24,901.55 normal statute miles, or 40,075.16 kilometers. What is the circumference of the Moon in nautical miles? Try to figure out the answer and send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode to come out on or around December 11th, What that episode is or will be is still a little bit up in the air. Now, with all of those extra segments in place, which I'm kind of surprised that I was able to uh, jerry-rig together, it is time for the announcements. I've come pretty close to finalizing my Australia trip, and I've heard from one person in Sydney and two in Tasmania. I will be in Sydney between January 7th and 11th, so if anyone there is interested in a meetup, please write in. For Tasmania, I'm a little bit more constrained by day or multiple day side trips, but I will definitely be in Launceston, sorry for the pronunciation, for their Skeptics in the Pub on January 2nd starting at 5.30pm at the Royal Oak Hotel. I will be talking about the Lunar Ziggurat Saga, 
which has just as much to do with skepticism as it has to do with astronomy, as it has to do with how science works and how to gather data, or at least astronomy data for science, as well as arguing with crazy people. I will also be in Melbourne, December 18th through 27th, and again in January 13th through 14th. So if anyone is interested in meeting up there and then, let me know. Finally, I'm planning a lot of, hopefully, interesting episodes for while I'm in Australia, but in case an interview or two does not work out over the next two weeks, I do plan to bring my mic for an emergency recording if need be, so there still should be regular episodes coming out while I'm gone. That wraps up this very close to 30-minute long episode for the 94th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and while on an airplane in between airports, I spent about four hours, finally, getting almost all the way caught up with email. So if you have suggestions for topics or other feedback, uh, you should be near the top of the list now for responses. Um, Also, please write a review, write the podcast, tell your friends, tell random people. um, Outro music is ramping up in volume, so shalom.